The Labor of Love is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash love and using the promo code love. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of realsimple.com. Every parent wants their child to succeed, but a new book suggests that this will happen only when parents back off and allow their children to experience failure. Quote, the setbacks, mistakes, miscalculations, and failures we have shoved out of our children's way are the very experiences that teach them how to be resourceful, persistent, innovative, and resilient citizens of the world. These are the words of Jessica Leahy, a journalist who has taught middle school and high school for over a decade and is the author of the acclaimed new book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She joins me today to talk about the consequences of overparenting and the importance of letting children struggle. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Lori. Jessica, can you talk a little bit about what was happening in your own life as a mother and as a teacher when you decided to do this book? Well, I had been teaching for probably oh, oh a little over a decade when, I, you know, I just really started to notice that my students were getting scared. They weren't as open to making mistakes. They could hardly write rough drafts anymore. I had students who would freeze up during tests to the point where they could not move on to the next question if they, didn't, if they knew they weren't getting a question right. And, you know, as a teacher, my normal inclination to say, well, it's those parents, those terrible over-parenting parents. But the problem was is I had middle school student at the time. My older son was in middle school. And you know, I, this is the same community, similar kids, and so I figured, you know, if if I'm going to start blaming parents, I'm going to have to kind of throw myself under the bus as well and figure out what I'm doing wrong as well, because I probably was complicit. So, And then, you know, just I started looking a little bit more carefully. I always considered myself kind of a, you know, a go-with-the-flow kind of parent and that I didn't do that kind of stuff, um, make my kid nervous about performance, but clearly I was doing that. So... I had one of those moments where I went, oh, wait a second. <laughs> I can't blame this on someone else. I have to figure out for myself what's going wrong in my own parenting. And that led to the book. And you, you cite a lot of research in the book that really confirms your assumption that letting kids struggle is actually quite good for them in the long term. Can you talk a little bit about that research and what you learned from it? Sure. I mean, I was familiar before I read the book with, uh, you know, Dan Pink's book, Drive, which talks about the research of Edward D.C. and his wonderful book, Why We Do What We Do. So I knew a little bit about the fact that short-term incentives don't really work, that rewarding kids for learning in particular just doesn't work. It undermines creativity and it undermines motivation. So that was stuff I knew. And, and I, you know, I was familiar also with Carol Dweck and the idea that we need to promote a growth mindset in kids, the idea that intelligence isn't a fixed thing, that it's something that gets stronger and better the harder we work. So I had those kind of separate pieces, and then I came across the research of Wendy Grolnick, and she has this incredible body of research on what it means to be an autonomy-supportive parent and what impact that has on kids. And there are a couple of research studies she did where it was just so cut and dried that kids who had directive or controlling parents 
were a lot more likely to get frustrated and give up and not be able to do tasks on their own, whereas kids who, who had parents that, you know, guided them a little bit and sort of helped redirect them when they got really frustrated, those kids knew how to get over frustration, knew how to sort of pick up the pieces and move on without saying, oh, well, that's it, I can't do it, it's all over, it's, it's too hard, I can't do it. So, you know, I, I had to figure out how that all worked in parenting and how that all worked for education and walk that line between being a teacher and a parent and trying to figure out what's going to work for everybody. What do you say to failure-averse parents, the ones who feel it's really difficult to let go and just watch their children struggle? I agree with them. (laughs) It is really hard (laughs) to watch our kids struggle, especially since so much of our I don't know, our self-worth as parents is wrapped up in how they do. You know, we, we've, we're we having kids later. We're having kids after we've gotten more education under our belt and after we've been out in the workforce for a while, and then we have kids. And we don't get, you know, report cards or, you know, reports back on how we do as a parent. And so, unfortunately, our kids end up being that, our parenting report card for us. And And, you know, that's not fair to do to them. And so... You know, I saw these kids who were just not allowed to make mistakes, not, it just wasn't acceptable. And I realized there were just so many missed opportunities because those kids never get that opportunity to come up with the strategies and the tools they need in order to, number one, face up to frustration and, and, and push through the other side, but also just to become competent, to say, okay, well, that, that failed. That doesn't mean the whole thing is a failure. That just means that I have to pick up the pieces and figure out what works. In, in, in a different context and move forward. Um, I was just seeing a lot of kids, I don't know, who weren't getting that opportunity to mess up and figure out on their own how to fix things. And, you know, as a teacher, that's a disaster. Can you talk about why? Yeah, well, kids who are afraid to make mistakes are really hard to teach. I mean, kids who are afraid to uh, hazard a guess, kids who are afraid to have a conversation in the class about why their answer was wrong instead of just freaking out because their answer was wrong. Especially in classes like, you know, like math class or in my Latin class, for example, I needed the kids to understand why they were making the mistakes they were making or help one kid understand the mistake another kid was making. And they were just getting so upset when we would talk about the mistakes. They sort of felt like, oh, you're rubbing our nose in in the fact that we were wrong. And that sets kids up for a situation where they just can't take any emotional or intellectual risks. And, you know, we as a country have been criticized over and over again for creating thinkers who are okay at taking tests but can't be innovative, and that's one of the reasons why we're not allowing kids to apply knowledge in sort of brave ways. You talk about feeling conflicted at times when you were talking to parents about being honest with them about the fact that you felt their kids weren't taking risks and weren't doing the kind of creative thinking that they could and worrying that if you brought that up that the kids would end up suffering as a result because the parents might admonish them for not doing so well or not doing as well as they could. What were you imagining that parents (laughs) were doing to kids that was so punishing. I wasn't actually imagining. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I wasn't worried about my students' safety exactly. I was more worried about just sort of incurring, like you said, that wrath. You know, I had a student one time who was just having trouble taking feedback, which isn't too surprising if you don't get a lot of constructive feedback or 
you know, you've never been taught to, you know, learn how to take it well, it's difficult to incorporate, and, and kids tend to hear it as just criticism and, and shut down. I really needed to help him understand how to edit, because he just wasn't hearing it. And so I sent a little email to one of his parents saying, you know, I just, I'm concerned that he is having so much trouble hearing feedback that it's really making him shut down, and that concerns me. And that parent showed up in the middle of the day and took her child out of out in no front way. of his friends and into the parking lot, into the car, and, you know, yelled at him. <laughs> oh, God, that's and, so you depressing. Know, and this is middle school. This is in front of other kids. And mm-hmm. it was humiliating for him. And I don't want to be in a position where I feel like I've got to defend my students from their parents, but that's sort of where it was going. I was highly reluctant to email or call parents when it was something that maybe I could just let go. And you found, you talk a little bit about how some really gifted teachers you saw were leaving teaching. Um, And a lot of it had to do with the fact that parents were so difficult to deal with. You know, there's a lot of reasons. And I can't put it all on parents. You know, there's, there's so many reasons right now that teachers are feeling discouraged. And, you know, some of it has to do with the the huge amount of testing and some of it has to do with, you know, they don't feel like they get to teach the way they want to. But there is, especially among independent school teachers, a lot of pressure that, you know, the parents pay the bills for the school and you can't risk losing the tuition, especially for a family that has multiple children in one school. You know, you'd be losing three tuitions if that family got mad and left. I found myself agreeing sort of with so much of what you wrote about in terms of the the real lessons that can be learned when kids are you know have to struggle through something whether it's homework whether it's a relationship problem and yet i kept trying to imagine all the parents i know in my milieu taking your advice and backing off and i just couldn't imagine it <laughs> because i think that i think that there is such a intense culture of parenting in this country right now that any parent who reads your book and who might agree with a lot of it the way I did, I think might also be really fearful of being the one to opt out of some of the pressure because that inspires this fear that my kid's going to be the Mm -hmm. one who's going to fall behind. Absolutely. I mean, well, I did a couple of things. Number one, the book For me, this was the book I needed to read. You know, there's a lot of research in there, but really the research is the first third of the book, and two-thirds of the book is here's what to do. Here's how to back off around homework. Here's how to back off around grades. Here's how to back off around social life, that kind of thing, because I sort of felt like I'd read a lot of the books that were out there, and I'd finish them, and I'd say, well, you know, now I feel bad, and I don't know what to do. But the other thing I really tried to do was balance school and home needs but also for the parents that you're talking about. So, for example, in there I say that, you know, I don't think that parent portals for grading systems are a good idea unless you have, like, one military parent or parents are estranged or something like that. Many parents can log in and see what their kids are doing day-to-day and what assignments are in and that kind of stuff. And I think that's incredibly damaging to the parent-child relationship. So I offer two options. There's the go-in whole hog option, which is don't, use it. Don't ever open up that envelope that has your PIN number in it, which is what I chose to do, what my husband and I chose to do. But I have a halfway measure in there in case that's too scary, and which is, you know, open it up, get the PIN number, and say to your kid, well, I'm going to log in on Friday. It's now Wednesday if you have anything you want to talk to me about 
talk to me before Friday. So as often as possible, I tried to put some baby steps in there and just little ideas. Like instead of right now, if this is really scary for you, just step back for a second and think long-term instead of short-term. What are your long-term goals for your kid? And does this one tiny thing right in front of you matter as much as it feels like it matters right now? And often the answer is no. It's, you know, the you know, raising a competent kid might be more important to me in the long run than this one particular homework assignment getting left at home. In the advice realm, if you if you're sort of want to look at some of this research and put it into practice, I think one of the things that I was struggling with as I was reading was how do you strike a balance between hands-off and sort of standing back and letting them struggle on their mm-hmm. own and you know what's the what's the great balance between the two what is the i'm afraid that if some people might back off too mm-hmm. much and the child might really be struggling and really need help yeah absolutely i think the, the well the very first place to start is that while you're backing away you're just putting some space and and putting a little bit of room in there for the kid to have autonomy over some of the details of what they're doing. You're not necessarily giving them autonomy over everything. And, you know, there's a huge spectrum in there of how much autonomy you want to start giving your kids, and and it's going to depend on the kid. The other thing is that one of the things that I love that Michael Thompson says in one of his books, Pressured Kids, Pressured Students, I can't remember which one, he talks about the fact that more than anything, kids just want us to empathize with their struggle. It's not necessarily that they want us to solve it. I was reminded of that great scene in White Men Can't Jump where Rosie Perez doesn't want Woody Harrelson to go get him her a glass of water. She just wants him to empathize with the fact that her mouth is dry. And I think <laughs> kids sometimes just want us to say, I get it. That, that's really hard. And I'm really proud of you for working so hard at that. Um, so that's been the biggest change, I think. I'm a big fixer. I want to I want them to feel good about themselves, and I want things to go just the right way. And I'm also a perfectionist, and it drives me crazy when the stuff they do is less than perfect. But it's not my work. It's theirs. And, you know, I've learned all this stuff already. I'm a grown-up. They're not. So, again, it's about that sort of big picture versus, you know, what really matters today or what really matters this week. Often the the long-term picture is the way of making it a little less scary, I think. You're listening to The Labor of Love. When we come back, we'll talk about how to reframe chores as household contributions. The show is sponsored this week by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper cuts the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms, and they pass those savings directly on to you. The mattresses are obsessively engineered and with just the right sink and just the right bounce. They achieve that by using two different technologies, latex foam and memory foam, That means better nights and brighter days. And if you've had a good night's sleep, I guarantee you, you are going to get along better with your partner and everyone in your family. Plus, buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Don't just lie on it for 30 seconds at the store. Instead, Casper offers a 100-day trial period with free delivery and returns. They've turned the buying process into a risk-free experience. Casper understands the importance of truly trying out a mattress that in all reality you spend a third of your life on. And they're also made in America. Mattresses start at $500 for a twin and $950 for a king. 
I want to thank Casper for their support of the show. And right now, Labor of Love listeners can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash love and using the promo code love. Jessica, one of the things that gave me a lot of food for thought about your book was your suggestion that parents reframe the idea of chores and think about instead how children can contribute to their household. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you think that's a more useful framework? Yeah, I think in everything I read, there's, it seemed, there seemed to be a consensus that kids are just craving purpose. And, and um, you know, if you look throughout American history and, and how kids used to work and then we had child labor laws, well, kids, kids have, off, have for a long time in human history contributed to the household. And all of a sudden now, you know, they're expected to pretty much just go to school and maybe unload the dishwasher and that's it. And, or they, they have these things called chores, which, number one, sounds just horrible. Terrible. And number two, we pay them to do things around the house, which... I'm, I just, and if you read Ron Lieber's book, The Opposite of Spoiled, he and I are in agreement that that just isn't the way to go. I'm watching my son actually right now do the sort of perfect example of it right outside the window. Um, we have a, a little apple orchard in the backyard, and, and there's fruit all over the ground, and I need to make applesauce, applesauce that he will be eating. And so I have to mow the lawn tomorrow, and he's picking up the apples so that I can make applesauce so they don't get chopped up by the lawnmower, applesauce that he will eat. And that's you know, sort of part of the discussion. I don't, you know, have to pay him to go out and do the apples because it's just sort of part of what we do as a family. It, you know, this is part of, you know, what we're going to eat, what we're going to do, how the house runs, that kind of thing. And not paying kids for their chores is sort of a, a good starting place for that kind of understanding, that we all just kind of make the house work and that I need them as much as they need me. I love the idea of that. And then as you were discussing the apples, my thoughts were drifting to like the kinds of stuff that my kids do around the house. And I would say that like 9.9 times out of 10, I know I could do it better and mm-hmm. so and faster. And so that kind of trips me up a lot is that I end up doing it myself because it just needs to get done really quickly. Oh, I'm with what- you on that. I absolutely <laughs> hear you on that. And the, the, the funny thing about that is what used to drive me crazy was food in the, on, the, on the dishes in the dishwasher. It, it, it just, it makes me want to just turn inside out. It, it drives me crazy. And then I realized that, you know, well, then they get pissed off because the food comes out of the dishwasher with food on it, and they think it's disgusting, and they get all irked, like, who did this? Why is it? What? The dishwasher doesn't work. And, you know, then they have to scrub the dishes again. And so, you know, that was the last time they sort of didn't scrub the food off the dishes because, frankly, scrubbing it off afterwards is horrible. So, you know, I certainly wasn't going to do that because I wasn't the one who left the food on the, on the dishes in the first place. But I, I totally hear you. That's why I think the, I, that whole idea of thinking long-term rather than short-term and is it really important that the dishwasher is done in five minutes or is it important that, you know, in about a week and a half or a month or six months, I don't even have to have the conversation with them anymore about the way dishes are done. Who are you hoping was the audience for this book? Do you think that there are applications for parents who, you know, we're describing and we're discussing milieu of parenting that's pretty rarefied Mm -hmm. and certainly middle class and upper middle class? What about parents who are literally struggling themselves in really profound ways and really want their children to achieve something so that they can have a better life and they do put pressure on them so that they can achieve that? 
Yeah, I've, I've really been surprised, actually, by the response in communities that I didn't expect any of these messages to sort of be as relevant. I mean, after I, the book actually uh, was sort of sparked by an article I wrote for The Atlantic called Why Parents Need to Let Their Children Fail. And I heard from a lot of teachers that said, look, I would kill to have a couple parents show up at parent-teacher night. That's not my problem, the, the sort of the parent that won't come to school and, and deal with stuff. But on the other hand, I think there are the problem of rescuing kids simply because it makes us feel good about our own parenting is not something that is limited to to the upper class, and that's something that I've been doing a lot of talking with as I go out and, and do speaking stuff. I will say, however, that I'm absolutely guilty as charged that there is a, dem- a social, a socioeconomic demographic to this book, and I've done interviews, you know, talking about that. But just because it it may be limited more to one socioeconomic demographic than another doesn't mean that there isn't a problem worth addressing. Parents often try to shield their children from their own failures if they're struggling at work mm-hmm. um, or with their own marital problems or other issues in their life. It's very often they're talking about those things and handling those things behind closed doors. Right. What is a good and positive way that parents could model failure so that they don't scare their children and make their children feel like their world is unsafe and then falling apart, but that also teaches them something valuable. I, that's one of my favorite parts of the book, actually. I'm, I'm a big fan of, especially when you have older kids and you're starting to give them a little more autonomy over their lives uh, when they're older and you're sort of trying to get it all in before they head off to college. I think being honest with our kids is the number one place to start. Being honest with our kids, you know, as far as you feel comfortable. I happen to have a very high threshold for admitting when I've screwed up. But one of the big things that we do in our family is, and I talk about this in in the chapter on grades, is we have a big um, push in our house to talk a lot about goals. We started out with sort of a formal writing them down kind of thing, and it's, it's devolved more into a conversational thing where we really try to set some goals for ourselves, and one of them needs to be a little bit scary, and that's all of us, so myself, my husband. So, you know, there's one goal that I've had for the past two years that I still haven't achieved, but that's okay because it's my goal, and the kids do the same thing, and their goals, you know, could be related to school, but they're not necessarily. Sometimes they're about friendships, or sometimes they're about fitness or whatever, Goals are a really great place to be honest with your kids about why you haven't reached them, maybe how you plan to to change your behavior next time. However, there are some amazing opportunities with the hard stuff, too. You know, you come home and someone double-crossed you at work, and that person's really a nasty person. Talking to your kid about how you deal with that is invaluable. You know, they're going to have to deal with nasty people their entire lives. And so if we could talk about the way we deal with it, or we could talk about, you know, being humble about our own failures and where we screwed up. That's like, that's gold to kids, because that's, that's expertise right there. That's, that's easy learning. And modeling that we have resilience in the face of failure is one of the most important things we do for our kids. I think it also humanizes us, too. I think our parent, my kids always love it when I tell them some epic story about mm-hmm. a screw-up from yeah. my childhood. They love it. And what if you were to say, and what would you do? And then they all of a sudden have a part in, in, in helping problem-solve. I mean, talk about having a purpose and feeling like you're part of a right. family. 
Jessica, thanks so much for being on The Labor of Love today. It was great talking to you. It was great talking to you, too. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If you have a domestic quandary and would like to be a guest on our show, or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com backslash panoply or at panoply.fm. 